If you're visiting with us uh, this morning, we're thankful to have you uh, here with us. Uh, you'll notice in the pew in front of you there is a um, there's a visitor form, and encourage you to uh, fill that out. You can just leave it in the pew, and uh, we will uh, pick that up at following uh, our services this morning. Um, we have been looking at uh, the Gospel of Mark, and we find ourselves now in the 14th chapter. And what we're going to see is that all that has been prophesied, all that has been spoken by Jesus, it now begins to unfold. This week I was getting ready to spray my lawn with a weed killer. And as I was reading the instructions, it said don't water it or it shouldn't rain within 24 hours of spraying on the lawn. So the first thing I did was I got out my weather app and it said 15% chance of rain. And then I looked over my shoulder and I saw a very dark rain cloud and I did not spray the lawn. Now the question is why? One answer could be because I'm lazy and maybe you're on to something there. But ultimately, it was recognizing that sometimes I trust my experiences more than I trust the forecast of a weatherman. And for that matter, perhaps it's same of any sort of forecast. Jesus has, since the first verse of Mark 14, in fact, he's done it earlier, but since the first verse, he has been talking about what is going to happen, the forecast. And it seems as though in the garden the disciples are looking over their shoulder and saying, I don't know what Jesus is so worried about. Everything seems to be just fine. And it is in the text that we find ourselves, Mark 14, 43, that we find that the storm finally hits land. And the disciples and us as readers, we begin to experience its destruction. Without a doubt, it becomes clear that the tables are turning. And that the tide is now moving against Jesus. We will find two very clear examples of the shifting tides. The first we find in Mark 14, 43, where we find that one of the twelve, one who was given a very simple calling and commission in 3.14 to be with him, he will now turn against Jesus. This follower comes with a crowd, no longer associating himself with Jesus and with his other disciples, but now associating himself with the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. His allegiance has shifted from being with Jesus to now standing against Jesus. And so it is while Jesus was speaking that Judas, one of the twelve, came and arrived with him and there was a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. See, and Judas was a part of the planning. And verse 44 says, Now the betrayer had given them a sign. That means when there was this tactical meeting about how this arrest would happen, Judas was there giving his suggestions and giving his advice as to how this arrest ought to happen. Someone I can imagine saying, Judas, you know him the best. How do you think this is going to go down? And Judah says, I've seen him do an awful lot of powerful things. We're going to need men. We're going to need a lot of them. And they need to be well equipped with swords and clubs if we have any opportunity to stand against this man. And so there they arrive. Judas as casually as ever calling him Rabbi, 
kissing him on the cheek as if nothing were amiss. But in that moment, what begins is the betrayal, the arrest, the trial, and finally the crucifixion of Jesus. And we find also a second key shift as we've been reading Mark, that this is the first time that we find a crowd against Jesus. We've seen a lot of crowds. There have been crowds that have been so many that you cannot even get into the door to be with Jesus. There have been crowds who crowd around Jesus while he's walking that anybody who wants to get with him, they have to get elbow room to make way to touch him. We've seen Jesus in in deserted, isolated places teaching and crowds coming out with them. And so crowds have been on Jesus' side. But now for the first time in Mark, we find a crowd that is against him. They come now with clubs and with swords. And we are told as they seize him that there is a person who draws his sword and strikes the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. John identifies this person as Peter. And yet, Jesus, there is no direct rebuke to that one who does this action. And yet, by Jesus' response, we will come to find that he finds this behavior incompatible with the kingdom values that he's been calling for. His response in Mark 14, 48 Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not arrest me, but let Scripture be fulfilled. See, there is an irony in Judas' betrayal. Judas is the one who betrays him because he knows Jesus. But in Judas's part of planning and his prediction of how Jesus is going to respond, he says we need swords and we need clubs. And yet Jesus is pointing out, though Judas claims to know him, Judas does not know him at all. Because Jesus is not like these leaders of rebellions. Jesus is not like those who will gather up arms and fight. Judas does not know Jesus at all. Imagine it in this way that you work for a company that's been going through an awful lot of layoffs. And when it's your turn to be laid off, your boss comes in with an armed security guard behind him, just in case. And you're thinking, doesn't he know me? And there's no way, no matter how upset I am, I'm going to do something violent against someone else. You misunderstand my character if you think that's how I'm going to respond. And so here Jesus is treated just as if he were a bandit or a robber or a revolutionary. And the irony in this word is this is the very same word that Jesus, when he was in the temple, he said, you have brought my father's house into a den of these robbers or of these bandits or of these revolutionaries. They them.